Well, the long wait is over. The new Star Wars movie's out. <laughs> okay, maybe that's not what you were after. How many of you have seen it? Keep your mouth shut. Oh, okay. How many of you have seen it twice in one day? Wait, what? Yeah, twist your arm really tough. Yeah, right. Was it any good? Okay, good to know. Just asking. Who doesn't care? Oh, let us pray. <laughs> wow. The force is not strong with you. Oh, well. You know, lots, go, lots of things go on in the holiday season. We, we try to pack so much into these few days. And in, in the, the idea, or with the idea that somehow that completes it and fills it up and, and makes, it, makes it a satisfactory holiday season. But anybody else just tired? Is that just me? Yeah, okay, the UPS guy, of course. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's tough sometimes to try to throw so much together into this. And, and let's be honest, sometimes we just don't feel like it. Maybe we go through the motions, but there's not that sense of excitement or joy or whatever it is about the season. And maybe that's you this year. Uh, maybe it's you for the last several years. Or, or even as you, as you think about Friday and that, that last minute push, it's, it's just with a sense of, I'm not so sure. I just want it over with kind of a thing. We've kind of been dealing with those feelings for the last few weeks, and we want to, to, to wrap it up a little bit today as we, as we look forward to Christmas, because we, we said all along this Advent season is about waiting. It's about waiting for the arrival of Christ. Now, for us as Christians, we look back and wait, which is the best way to wait, to look back at something's already happened, to wait for it. But we also, and this is where we spent most of our time, we're also looking forward because we know we live in a world that is broken. This is not the way God intended our world to be with all the realities that you and I face, with the brokenness and the sickness and the, the, the struggle and the trials that come our way, whether around Christmas time or, or any time of the year. This is not how God originally designed the world to be. And what we look forward to is one day when God will set back right everything that's gone wrong in the meantime. And we're sort of between two miracles, if you will. We're between that first miracle where God became man in the person of Jesus, that baby born in Bethlehem a couple of thousand years ago, and the gift of salvation that came by his life and his death and his resurrection. And we're between that and the next miracle, which is when God does come back. God returns. Jesus the second coming to set everything right. We're stuck in that in-between time. And in that, sometimes we, we struggle. But the Christmas story reminds us of some things. Probably the, the most well-known telling in Luke chapter 2, where it begins, and a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. In the immortal words of Mel Brooks, it's good to be the king. If you saw that movie, you should be ashamed. I am. But anyway, it's good to be the king. Caesar can make a decree, and everybody has to obey 
what he said. And he makes a decree that the whole world should be taxed. How about that for a decree? The whole world. And to be taxed, you have to go to the land of, of your fathers. And for a young man named Joseph, he had to go to the little city of Bethlehem, the city of David. And as he was preparing to go, he had, well, can we say a bit of a complication? A wife who was very pregnant. And the pregnancy itself is its own story. But imagine telling your eight-plus-months pregnant wife, hey, honey, get on this here donkey. We're going for a ride. Good times. Good times. And off they went to Bethlehem. And in all of that, we see maybe inconvenience. We think how difficult that must have been. What must have that trip been like for, for Mary? What must have Joseph been thinking as, as he's still dealing with the reality of, of a pregnancy of a child that's, that's not his and the miraculous nature of it and probably that internal dialogue that's continued for him all of those times. And, and it all happened because a man made a decree. But here's what I want you to remember. Man can make all the decrees they want. No matter how powerful or influential they are, no matter how much they think they're setting the course of events, man makes decrees, but God always has a plan. And he used that king, that Caesar, to put that young couple, two ordinary people, nothing extraordinary about them except the circumstances they found themselves in, right in the place where he had prophesied hundreds of years before that the Messiah would be born. Yeah, it was a little inconvenient. Yeah, it was a bit of a journey and maybe not the most comfortable one. And yet, throughout all of that, God's purposes, God's plan prevailed. And I I would imagine for some of us, we might feel like we're under the decree of another person. Maybe it's, it's a doctor that had some things to say. Maybe it's in a relationship with a husband, a wife, or kids, or parents, and some tension has built in that. And some things have been said, and some ultimatums have been given. Maybe it's a legal matter, and a judge has spoken, or however it works. Maybe it's a work issue, and the boss really coming down. And the trial is real, and the struggle, and the, and the, the frustration of all that you're dealing with. But I want you to remember, though, though somebody might have made a decree, God still has a plan. God's still at work. And we don't always see what God might do in taking the circumstances of our life and the decrees and the, and the whims of other people to put us in a place where we might could experience Him more fully. I want to look at a few verses, actually in the book of 2 Corinthians. I know it's not a traditional Christmas passage. It's not one we often look at around this time of year. But I think it has some things to say for us today that might be helpful. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we're going to be, beginning in verse 6. The Bible says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, 
made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This verse harkens back to creation. When God stepped into the void that was whatever it was at that point and said, let there be light. And the scriptures record when he spoke and there was light. That's pretty cool, isn't it? To say something and it happens. Does that happen in your house? Who's got kids? They always listen, right? You speak, let it be spoken, let it be done. Is that how you work? According to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked? No, not so much. Must be nice to to say something and it happens. Well, that's the the power of our God. When he speaks, his word goes out and and, and the reaction is, is there. Let there be light and there was light. But notice that that same God who spoke those words so long ago also wants to speak something into our lives. He wants to talk to us that that he made that same light shine into our hearts. I think of those shepherds out in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. You may have heard that passage. And an angel appeared to them and the glory of the Lord, it says, shone round about them and they were terrified. They were sore afraid. Think about the glory of God that shone to them. And I I read this passage and I I remember that idea that that God wants to shine the light of his glory on us. And in that first Christmas, it's shown in the face of a baby, in the face of Christ. And he goes on in verse 7, continues, and he says to us, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. That's pretty heady stuff that Paul would write. I I can relate to some of it. If if I think in that passage, maybe like you, I I can relate to verses 8 and 9, where we're hard-pressed and perplexed and persecuted and struck down. All of those things seem to be the stuff sometimes of life. All of those things seem to be the reality that in this broken world we face. But I like, after every one of those things, Paul would record the positive. Yes, we may be, according to this passage, hard-pressed on every side, but, but we're not crushed. We may be perplexed, but we're not in despair. We may be persecuted, but we're not left all alone in it. We may be struck down, knocked down, but that's not the end of the story. You see, in this waiting that we find ourselves between the miracle of the birth of Jesus, the first coming of Christ, God becoming man, the second person of the Trinity inhabiting flesh, to that second miracle when God will return and set right everything that's wrong, we can relate to these things. And it is here that we find 
for ourselves the reality. But notice how Paul goes on in verse 16 and says this, but we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And then he says this, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, for what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Light and momentary, huh? That's what you're going with? Depends on really what you're comparing it to, doesn't it? In Paul's mind, light and momentary compared to that which awaits us. We live, what's the average lifespan these days? 75, 80, somewhere in there. Is that right? Seventy-eight. Okay, thank you, Lindsay. <laughs> sure. That's a long time, we might think. Now, I'm guessing if I were to, to find over next door maybe a, a, a preschooler and say, what do you think about 78 years? Oh, that's old. You know, that's like ancient. Right? No offense if anybody is 78 or above in the house. I'm just giving perspective. In fact, I remember, like when you go to kindergarten, wasn't your kindergarten teacher like 105 years old, or was that just mine? I felt like, wow, she's like really up there. And then, you know, you go through the rest of your school career and go away to college and come back, and somehow this, this person who was 105 when you started school is still teaching. She must be 130 now. And remarkable, the perspective. Now, a few years ago, 78 seemed a long way away. When I was at college and looking forward to all that life had. But, you know, every year that gets shorter and shorter and younger and younger. Perspective is, is an incredible thing for us. Paul says light and momentary, not because what you're going through needs to be somehow belittled, because that's not his point at all. His point isn't whatever the struggle, whatever the trial, whatever the, the, the situation in your life that is so huge for you is such a heavy burden and seems interminable like it's never going to end. He's not making light of that at all. No, he's rather saying to us, let's talk about perspective. Let's look at it in comparison to something else. And the something else is that second miracle we've talked about for a few weeks, that, that place that we're in between and looking forward to, that thing that begins with the return of Christ and never ends. We have a weird idea of forever, and we've talked about this in other contexts. But sometimes... Things happen and we say things like, wow, this is taking forever. Yes. How long did it actually take? 17 minutes, maybe? I was in traffic. I, I had a great idea. I'm going to go shopping for Christmas early. Isn't that a great idea? It's revolutionary to me. 
And so, was it just this week? It feels like so long ago. I was going to run up to Miami in the afternoon and get some things done. It was going to be a piece of cake. Caroline's home, so we got her car around, so I don't have to give away that I'm going shopping and anything like that. So I'm just going to sneak away, and I'll be back in no time. And I found traffic, not quite to a standstill, but but pretty bad. And you know, I'm looking at my watch. I'm like, okay, it's like I still have time. It's only 1:45, and I, as long as I'm back by 5:30, I should be fine. And finally, traffic cleared up. It's actually on the other side of the turnpike. There was no obstruction at all on the northbound lanes, but for some reason, everybody on the northbound lanes wanted to know what was going on in the southbound lanes because apparently it was really exciting over there, um, and it was. One of those accidents that happened, and you know, I, I know I knew we were in trouble. I, I know we were in trouble. Did I actually say that? I knew I was in trouble when I noticed there was no southbound traffic coming. I figured the southbound lanes are probably completely blocked, and they were. But we got through. I'm like, okay, I'm fine. Get to where I'm going. Found the parking place. Go in. The store is packed. I mean, just slammed. Of course, like all the stores are this time of year. I'm like, it's. Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever day it was, surely they won't be busy today. They were busy. Waited my turn because I needed a little help and, and, and then found what I wanted and went to put it in the car and found out it was too big to go in the car. Your, your sympathy is helpful. Um, so I said, can I take it out of the box? Well, if you take it out of the box, that means the warranty isn't there. I'm like, it's okay. Otherwise, i got to strap it to the top coming out of the box. He said, I'm not sure it's going to fit even if we take it out of the box. I'm like, I'll take that chance. It fit. But by the time all of that happened and I left, US won. 4.30. Going, okay. Yeah. I'm in trouble. Supposed to be home at 5.30. I had to be home by 5.30 so no one would be the wiser. Now I have a choice. Is Do I hope that someone works late and doesn't know I'm gone? Or do I, like, admit defeat and kind of play it off so that, you know, I won't be in trouble because someone will know I was actually shopping? I went with that angle. I thought that was the best, best thought. And I also promised to buy dinner on the way home. That was, you know, double whammy. But, but it worked, you know. And I, I just thought... As I'm standing in the stores, I'm sitting in traffic, that's all I think. This is taking forever. I was gone like five hours total. If heaven is only five hours, that's going to really stink, isn't it? If we go through all of this in life and we get to heaven and God's like, okay, time's up, five hours, you're out. Whoa, 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 whoa. That is not cool, God. But that's not what Scripture presents. That's not the perspective against which we can measure our experience. So the perspective is forever, as in 
time doesn't matter. There's not, it's not even like it's going to last. We sing songs about when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Did I get those words right? I blanked for a minute. Nonetheless, we, we sing that because we think we get to heaven. There's a really big clock on the wall. It just keeps turning. And, and no, time doesn't even count then. We're outside of this constraint that for us manages and demands so much of our lives. Like I need five days of shopping left. Really four, because if you go shopping Christmas morning, that's probably not true either. But nonetheless. And, and we're outside of that. And Paul would write, these light and momentary troubles, not because the troubles that we face are in any way light or momentary, but because he's encouraging us to change the perspective of our lives from these things to something else, to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, says the same kind of idea just a little differently. In verse 3, he starts by saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in His great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. That sounds good. He goes on and says, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, and here's another way he puts it, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor. In praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We said a few weeks ago, we kind of live in a culture that deals with two big ideas. How do you feel? You feel good? You need to feel good. If you don't feel good, buy this and you'll feel good. And the second thing is a lot like it. It's, how soon can I get what I want? You can get it for three easy payments. $19.99. And if you call in the next 30 minutes, we'll reduce one of those payments. There's only two payments of $19.99. Isn't that awesome? Plus shipping and handling, which is like $250, I think. But anyway, it's kind of the world we live in. We're kind of thrown those things all the time. How do you feel? How can you feel good? You need to feel better. You deserve a break today. So come on in and have it your way at McDonald's. You can do better than that. That's, but that's what we buy. And then we, we're, especially this, this time of year where, where we're looking for gifts and we're buying gifts, we're really confronted with that, what you deserve and what you need. And if you just get this, you can have it. And in that culture, we can easily be swayed to that way of thinking as if 
God's primary objective for your life is to make it easier and for you to feel good. Now, I know that's what's sold a lot under the name and the banner of Christianity, that God exists to make you happy. God exists to make your life better. In fact, if you come and listen, we've got three steps, four points, five ways that you'll find satisfaction in life. I don't think God is out there to make our lives easier. No, I think God's greater concern is that our lives matter. That there's substance to them. That they mean something. Easy is good sometimes, yeah. I I like easy. I like to play Sudoku. Anybody else? On the computer? Sometimes I select easy. I just want a quick game. Just real quick. won't take more than a few minutes to put those squares in there. But then there's times when you get a challenge. It's tougher. Maybe there's something to that. We don't always want tougher. But you know, I've found, and you probably have too, in most things in your life, it's the tougher stuff that builds you up. You know, those easy puzzles where the solutions are obvious and there's always, it's in this column and there's only one box that you can possibly fill in in that column with that number. So all you have to do is get the angles right. Oh, not really angles. It's not geometry. I don't mean to say that, but, you know, the squares. And you can just kind of fly through those, and sometimes that's good. But if you really want to kind of get good at Sudoku, it's when you do the hard puzzles or the expert puzzles where it starts out with like three numbers on the whole grid. And you have to fill in the possibilities and slowly decide which possibilities won't work and eventually get there. And you learn some things about how the puzzle works and, and how to you, you learn some new techniques in solving that particular puzzle, the harder the puzzle is. Yes? Anybody work out? You, three of you? I know what January whatever sermon is. Look in the mirror, preacher. Okay, you got me, nevertheless. Do you go in and say, you know, I want to get stronger, so let me put less weight on the bar. Right? That's how it works. I want to learn how to lift more, so I want the lightest dumbbell I can find. Is that how it works? I ran a half marathon a few years ago. I learned you should run a lot before you try to run a half marathon. You can't like do a 5K one day and say, I'm ready, bring it on, because it doesn't work that way. Some of you have been to school, you've got degrees, advanced degrees even. And there were some things you had to start out with, but along the way, to get to the point where you were ready to take on the career that you were looking forward to, things got harder. The problems got more difficult. The challenges were greater. The papers got longer. The research more demanding. Why? Because all of that was necessary to hone your skills and your knowledge to the point where you were ready to handle whatever it was. And while it's not the best analogy for the struggle that is life sometimes and for the difficulties we face, it's to some degree 
God helping us develop in a way that our lives begin to have weight, that they, they can matter for Him. Everything's easy. Our character isn't always good. We, we learn a lot, don't we, in the difficulties? In fact, if you've been through those difficulties, it's often not in the middle of them, but years later when you look back and say, I can look at that and see as hard as it was, God was up to something. God built some things in me. God refined me, as he says, gold in the fire. That's not a pleasant process, but it's what's necessary to make that gold become. And in those difficult, hard times, God is is doing something in our lives, forming his character in us, helping us in this meantime even yearn more for when he will one day set right that which has gone wrong. See, I think we have the wrong idea. We, we have this idea that, that somehow we have to prove ourselves to God in these struggles. Well, I want you to lay that burden down. Because here's the thing. The trial doesn't allow me to prove myself to God. It's actually the opposite. It shows that God can be trusted. He proves himself to me. See, God knows what he's got in me. It's not a lot. It's a broken, sinful person who's prone to mistakes, who's prone to discouragement, who's prone to depression, who's prone to giving up. God doesn't need me to carry that burden. No, God needs me to understand through those trials, He is proving Himself trustworthy and faithful. And all the stuff that He has revealed about Himself becomes to ring truer and truer and truer. See, the psalmist said, I know your frame and it's dust. Just look at your neighbor and say, you are dust. Don't say it so it's enthusiastically. It's all ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? Who likes dust? Do you like to wake up in the morning and go, my house is dusty, amen. This is awesome. People are coming over and there's dust everywhere. No, not so much, right? We, dust is not a positive thing, but that's, that's what Scripture says. And, and, and we know that that's the case. And, and we, ha- we can lay down the burden of thinking we have to prove something to God because we can't and we won't and we don't. And on the other hand, we can be honest with God. We can be real with God. Those, those things that we looked at a few minutes ago in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we can say to God, you know what, God? I'm perplexed. Things aren't making sense. There was a trial. Something happened. And I turned to you. And I prayed. And it got worse. Anybody been there? God, I don't understand. I am perplexed. I thought I could lean into you. And you would take care of it. And you didn't. And I don't understand. But what does he say? You might be perplexed. Don't be in despair. I've not left you, God would say. Be real enough to admit that. 
but don't go all the way to destroy. The last one in that, that series of four, I am struck down. I, I've been knocked down. Life has knocked me over. I didn't see this coming. I wasn't ready for it. And figuratively, it knocked me flat. We can admit that to God. We can confess that to Him. And I think the encouragement Paul would give us is that you might be knocked down, but you're not destroyed. God is still there. He can help you up. In fact, one of the mistakes that we make is just by saying, God, I'm knocked down. I'm perplexed. I'm weak. And that's the end of the sentence. Period. And we forget that Scripture says that when you and I are weak, He is strong. For His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Do you feel weak today? Do you feel overwhelmed today? Do you feel perplexed today? Is it possible that God can enter into that and somehow His strength in you can be made perfect through the difficulty you're going through? That is one of the things that we can look to because we have a God who doesn't work in the normal way. One of my favorite songs, I think it was by For Him around Christmas time, was several years ago. The title is, It's a Strange Way to Save the World. And ain't it, though? I mean, if you were going to save this world, how would you do it? I'm not asking for answers because that would take a while. I've, I've seen at least 37 political candidates who all have a plan to save the world. And somehow I'm not comforted. How would you do it? I'm guessing none of your plans begin with, I'm going to find a young teenage mom and a carpenter that are obscure, hardworking, might even be poor working class people. And I'm going to step into their lives in a miraculous way. I'm going to save the world by becoming a baby. Babies are great, aren't they? They were fighting over a baby earlier today. Not really fighting over. Kind of. I was being supportive. Babies are awesome. They're so cute. They're, they're so tiny. I like their hair. I guess I like hair, too. Maybe that's the problem. But have you ever touched like a, a, a baby's hair? It's so soft. And they smell so good most of the time. Babies are great. But they're pretty helpless. They don't do a lot on their own. Have you noticed that? 3 a.m., wah. Milk's in the fridge. Help yourself. Doesn't work that way, does it? Nope. That's, that's God's plan. The eternal God of the universe who speaks, let there be light, and there is light, who has thousands and tens of thousands of angels at his disposal, decides the way to save the world is to become a baby. It doesn't always work the way we do. And we find that out in our lives. And, and in that, when we, when we come to terms with this God who sometimes works upside down and backwards from what we might expect, it can allow us 
not to look at what's seen, as Peter says at the end of that section. Because all of that is temporary. But see beyond that, the, the things that are unseen. James, the brother of Jesus, said this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So Jesus has something for you. You're in the midst of a trial. You're in the midst of a struggle. There's a decree spoken over your life. You're dealing with the uncertainty. You're perplexed. You're knocked down. You're hard-pressed. And through that, Scripture says one day, God has something for you, a crown of life. That's pretty cool, right? What are you going to do with that crown? I don't know. You have pictures in your head. You get to heaven and people get crowns. You get a crown. You're going through unimaginable frustration, unimaginable confusion, unimaginable whatever. One day you're going to have a crown. That's a good thing. Let me ask the other question. What do you have for Jesus? When people show up to Jesus, they brought gifts. You notice those three guys in the story? The three wise men. What did they bring? frankincense, and myrrh. Oh, you guys are good. Impressed. Bonus points for you. Good gifts, right? Expensive gifts. They're going to bring them to Jesus. Well, one of the things that I think when I read what James wrote about the crown of life, you know, when we get to heaven, the idea isn't going to be, hey, look at my crown. I have more jewels in my crown than you do. Your crown's okay, but let me show you my crown. Like we're going to run around the streets of gold bragging about our crowns, right? I don't think that's the way it's going to work. Revelation 4 gives us this picture. It's an incredible picture. There are 24 elders around the throne. And there are four living creatures. And the four living creatures, you know what they're doing all day and all night? Crying out, holy, holy, holy to the God who sits on the throne. And Scripture says that whenever the four living creatures give glory to God, you know what the 24 elders do? Guess what they're wearing? Thank you. I didn't think it was hard questions. Crowns. What do they do? They fall on their knees and they throw their crowns down. And it says they do it whenever the four living creatures give glory to God. When do the four living creatures give glory to God? Do you remember what I said a minute ago? All day. And all night. That's a lot of bowing and throwing crowns. Amen? But that's what they do. And we go through this life, and maybe we say we're, we're earning our crown. Maybe you right now are earning the crown that one day will be yours because you're persevering. You're, you're in this trial, and you're having to stand the test. But just think of the fact that you are building for yourself this character. And you are preparing yourself for the day that when you see the one who came for you, and when you take the crown off, and when you lay it at his feet, you have given to him this incredible gift of worship.